have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me or to open your app and click with me over to Luke chapter 10. This morning, as we continue working our way through Luke's gospel, we come now to chapter 10 and we see that Luke is continuing to show us what he began in the final verses of chapter 9, which is this theme of mission. And it will continue throughout chapter 10. He's told us in the, the larger picture of his gospel, he's told us who Jesus is, who he's going to be, what he's going to accomplish. He's told us already what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus and now he shows us how it will be that more disciples will be made, namely through the preaching of the word of Jesus through his disciples. In other words, even today, disciples become disciples. People turn to Christ in faith through the preaching that we ourselves do, not just behind this pulpit, but with everyday speech as we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus now has instructions, not just for those in his day, but instructions that reveal principles for all of God's people for all time until he returns on how we are to go about continuing in that mission of making disciples. And that's what we want to see this morning. So please follow along as I begin reading at verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to him, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done entire inside, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Then it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. 
As we begin, it's very important that we be absolutely clear on the context of Jesus' words. Listen again to how Luke begins. He says, The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Who are, who are they in addition to? To 72 others is in addition to the 12 apostles who received a similar commissioning just uh, a little while back and was sent out to preach for Jesus. Now, Jesus broadens his gaze beyond just the 12 apostles. He broadens his gaze to see these 72 committed disciples. He says, now I am sending all of you out as well. You are receiving very much the same commission that the apostles received. And you are to follow along after them. In other words, this is significant because it keeps us from distancing ourselves from the text. Of believing that somehow Jesus' words here are to a special group of disciples. A professional class of Christians who go out and they're missionaries and they're preachers and they do that full time. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's just the opposite of that. Yes, you have the twelve leaders among the church. But now he calls all of his disciples to him and says, you have the same task. You are to be going and making disciples, declaring the kingdom of God that has come, preparing people for me to be in their midst. So this morning as we sit here, if we claim the name of Christ, if we count ourselves as his disciples, then we need to embrace these words with obedience and faith and consider how they speak to us today, us individually, and how we are to be living out the calling of Christ on our lives. Specifically, we need to consider how they, how they bear on us as we consider the calling to go and to proclaim the gospel, making disciples of Christ for the fame of his name. So what do we see in this text? What should we be doing? Two major things. First of all, we need to understand the harvest field. We need to understand the harvest field. Jesus says very clearly, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Two very obvious things emerge from these verses. First of all, that the harvest is plentiful. That the harvest is plentiful. The verse comes in the context of evangelism and missions. It comes in the context of Jesus calling and sending his disciples to make more disciples. So from the outset, this imagery of the harvest field is wrapped up in that context of missions and evangelism. The harvest field that he envisions is this great number of unbelievers, just like a field of wheat that is ready to be harvested, so also they are ready to hear the gospel to believe and to be received into Christ's kingdom. He says the harvest is plentiful. Jesus, you remember, he's gathered these 72 to him. He's gathered them around them. And I can only imagine that he's he's looking over all of them. He knows them all by name. He knows how long they have been with him. He knows all of their all of their successes, all of their failures, all of their strengths, all of their weaknesses. And yet as he looks into the faces of this diverse crowd, he is encouraged. Because they have faith in him. And I can imagine a, a smile on his lips as he, as he draws together these, these 72 who have placed their faith in him. But, th- but then his gaze broadens. 
perhaps physically, he lifts his eyes to the area that he can see the very limits of human vision around him. And then perhaps he, he imagines with his mind's eye all of those cities and towns to which he has been and he has not been and he will never reach in his lifetime. To all of those Jews, his, his brothers ethnically who have already rejected him and who, who are currently living without any faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of those Gentile peoples who bow down to false gods, not knowing, not worshiping, not loving or serving the one true God. And I can imagine that smile begins to fade as he realizes there is an immense, an immense amount of lostness. Harvest is plentiful. There is innumerable people there in his day without faith in the one true God. The harvest was plentiful in Jesus' day and it's plentiful still in our day as well. Last week we shared some numbers about the state of lostness in the world. Out of the approximately 7 billion people there are in the world, at the most generous estimates, only one-third are Christians. That means there are roughly 4.5 billion people in the world without Christ and on their way to hell. What about here at home? The last few In the last few years, studies have shown that there are approximately 350 unbelievers to every one believer in the state of Michigan. For every Christian, there are 350 people who are not Christians. Some who actively oppose Christians. Think about those numbers. Think about your neighbors and about your towns. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful and we need to understand that. We need to embrace that. We need to understand the task of evangelism and missions is not over. It's not, it's not time to just, to just sit comfortably and to learn and to enjoy each other's company. There is a larger task at hand. The Great Commission has not yet been fulfilled. There are people out there who do not believe, who have never heard the gospel, and our calling is to reach them, whether they're across the street or around the world. The harvest is plentiful, therefore, secondly, the harvest needs laborers. The harvest needs laborers. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Surely in that moment it was true. You've got Jesus the 12 and 72. The only people who, uh, now certainly there are other people out there who, who have heard, who have heard the message of Jesus, who, who have had some kind of faith in him, but these are the ones that he has commissioned and sending out. These are actual laborers going out. 72 against the world? That's few. But again, think about the numbers I just cited. One Christian for every 350 in our state. One third of the globe at the the most conservative estimates against two thirds, billions of people who have not heard. Workers are still needed today. Laborers are still needed today to take the gospel to those that are lost. To either give it for the first time or to water the seed that someone else has already planted. So what do we do? So what do we do? We, we see that the, that the harvest is large, the fields are large, we need laborers. Well, let's just, let's just think about, let's think about the fact that we should just start telling people about Jesus right where we're at. Before we even, before we even think about going to the nations, how about just knocking on the door of the person next to us? Right? 
Think about the fact that there's about 50 members right here at this church. What if we, what if we would just commit right now, right here to pray daily? The first thing we do when we get up in the morning is to get on our knees and to pray for opportunities to share Christ and then pray for commitment to take those opportunities when they come for the next 12 months. What do you think would happen? Well, I guarantee you one thing that would happen is not everybody you talk to would get saved. Just this past weekend, as Joshua and I were checking into a hotel in Lansing for a conference, uh, we were riding the elevator, and there was a huge group of kids with hockey sticks running everywhere. So there was some kind of hockey event going on, right? I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, no-brainer. So there's an older couple that gets the elevator with us, and um, trying to start up a conversation to be a little bit funny. I said, are you guys here to play hockey? And uh, they said, no, 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 we're not here for that. And they said, how about you? And And I said, we're here for a Bible conference. Now, you have to understand, when I say that inside, I'm going, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Opportunity, conversation, get to say something. You know what they replied with? Oh, ding, out the door they went. Nothing. And I thought, well, look at Joshua and said, at least we tried. At least we tried. But here's the reality. That's going to happen a lot. If you purpose in your mind, I'm going to take every opportunity, I'm going to do everything I can, uh, you're going to get that response a lot. One of the easiest things, that, if I remember to do it, sometimes I don't, because I'm manhandling little people around me, but uh, when you go out to eat at a restaurant, and, and the, the server comes and they said, here's all the food, is there anything else that, that you need before, before I take off? Just stop and say, you know what, we're getting ready to pray over our food and thank God for it. Is there anything that going on in your life that we could pray with you about? And and sometimes I've seen servers just just sit down and begin to weep and just pour out their life and it's an amazing opportunity and other times it's been my case when they go oh well um my my dog is sick it's not what i had in mind but okay we'll pray for your dog it's something right now now we we can respond in one of two ways first of all we we can say you know what i'm terrible at this i I, i'm no good at this i'm going to let somebody else do it and i'm never going to do it again that's one response that's a response that frankly a lot of christians in this country have but the response I think that Jesus wants us to have based on these verses is saying, no, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. I got to keep going. I got to keep going. This is what I'm called to do. This is why God has created me. I am here to rep the king. I'm here to spread good news. I've got to keep going. doesn't matter if I hear 50 people tell me, no thanks. There's going to be one that God has prepared to hear and believe. What if we made a commitment to, to live that way for 12 months? I, I'll tell you what would happen. There would be a lot of people who, who, who would just have an encounter with us, but there would be fruit. At the end of 12 months, of all 50 members committed to live that way, there would be people saved. Absolutely, definitely, I have no doubt. Because if we are sincere in our desire, God is going to bless that. He is going to allow his word to go forward. But here's the other thing. The Tri-Cities will not be fully reached. Even if all of us led one person to Christ and this church filled up over the course of 12 months, that's not all of Bay City, Midland, and Saginaw, is it? So can you imagine if we just committed, instead of, instead of doing that, let, let's think of another commitment. Let, let's just assume that right here, right now, this morning, all of us here in this room, all of us, especially the members of Crossway, we committed to quit our jobs, to sell our homes, and to go to the nation's. 
that, that, that we would, that we would, we would go immediately online after the service. We would find some people group that we know. Christians have never been there as far as we know. The gospel's never been there. That's where we're going to go. And we're just going to find a job when we get there. And we'll let, we'll take a tent to live in or whatever it's going to do. But we're going to go right now. I know some of you are scared to death. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not going to ask you to do that this morning. God might, but I'm not. We might go there and God might give fruit. He, he might, he might be so gracious to us, so merciful to the nations that in every single people group, believers start to spring up. But guess what? We're not going to get all four, four, four and a half billion with just us doing that. We start by telling. We continue with going, but we have to do more than that because the sheer size of the task demands it. Jesus said that the harvest is amazingly huge and the laborers are so small and tiny compared to what's before us. So what should we do? Second, we not only understand the harvest field, but now we pray for harvest laborers. We pray for harvest laborers. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. For, for years, it was incredibly popular. I hear it sometimes still, but, but not as much probably as in the, the, the 90s. But it was very popular for Christians to say, I believe in the power of prayer. Let me just say publicly, I don't. I don't believe in the power of prayer. Because prayer has in itself no power. Listen clearly to what I'm saying here. Prayer in itself has no power. This is the reason why Hindus pray and Muslims pray and Congress prays and nothing happens. Prayer has no power. But when we understand Christian prayer, when we understand that we are calling out to our Father in heaven through prayer, He is the one who has the power. He is the one who can respond. He is, Jesus says, the Lord of the harvest. So if he has called us into the harvest, if he has said he wants to reap a harvest, then he is the one that we call out to, and he is the one who has the power. He is the one who has the power to move and to change minds and to cultivate faith in sinners, bringing them to himself as committed disciples. So Jesus says, we should be praying. We should be praying. God save people right if 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 the if the harvest is about lost people being saved and god is the lord of the harvest then our prayer should always be god save people open hearts uh uh make clear blind eyes bring the gospel to people and get them saved that that's where we start but then jesus is more specific than that he says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field so that's what we pray for and the rest of these verses tell us what, specifically what kind of laborers we should be praying for now as we look through this remember this is not just a prayer for those out there all of us are called to this task whether whether we live in bay city or, or, or Saginaw, Midland, our whole life or st charles or essexville wherever we live if we've been born and raised there and we die there or if we, if we go to Africa or to the Maori people of Australia or if we go to uh, Dutch people in the Netherlands with the gospel, wherever it is we're going, we are praying for these things for ourselves as well. We, 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 we pray that God would raise up a people like this and send them, but we also pray this for one another in this room and for our spouses and for our children and for ourselves. 
So what do we pray? We pray that God will raise up and that God will make us to be laborers who preach God's kingdom. Laborers who preach God's kingdom. Jesus says, as they are going, even in the midst of performing great miracles that they might otherwise focus on. And that might be the, the, the whole emphasis of not only their ministry or those that hear it. Just do the, do the miracle again, right? Do the cool thing again. He says, no, 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 no. Make sure that you are declaring the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's the point of the mission. To declare the kingdom of God. That is the coming of His sovereign and saving reign over people's lives. Salvation has come in Jesus. That is our message. At the end of this month, Doug Brubaker is going to preach from Galatians and he's going to, going to show us how that message can be twisted and distorted and how it is all the time. But this is the centrality of our message. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the only way sinners can be made right with God. That's the focus of our message. And notice how they preach. In verse 3, Jesus says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. How do you like that last part? Don't, don't even say hi to people. Is that what Jesus is saying? Don't, don't even say hi to people. I, I'm working here. Get, get, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. I don't think that's what he's saying. And you shouldn't think that's what he's saying either. First of all, notice that, that it's on the road. He has told them, you got to go and you got to go to those cities and then you land. Because then you have a base of operations from which to proclaim. But more than that, you need to understand that for us, we see each other on the street and often it can just be, how's it going? Great. And we're gone. Right? That's not always the case in cultures around the world, particularly the culture of Jesus' day. In fact, I was just reminiscing about this with Jason the other day as we thought about the the, the traditional greetings in the Tamajet culture that we have ministered to over in in Niger. And uh, they can be pretty developed and go on for quite a while. And so if you ever plan on going, uh, the first two Tamajic words that you should learn are al-haras. That's the two words that you should learn. Because when they go, it, it means all is well or everything is fine. Or uh, as the young people used to say, it's all good. Okay, that's what, that's what, that, that's what those two words mean. And so the, the reason why you use that is because when they come up and greet you, particularly if they know you or they're being friendly towards you, they don't just say, how are you? They say, how are you? How is your family? How is your wife? How are your kids? How are the goats? How is your house? Uh, you know, how are your friends? Because they're really concerned to know all these things. And so if there's anything wrong or especially praiseworthy at any moment, they ask you that question, any point along the list, you can elaborate. So just saying hi can take 30 minutes. And I saw something of this while we were over there with um, our, uh, our, our, our worker. He, he met this guy who was happy to see him, and he began asking his questions. Uh, how are you? And, and our worker would say, Aharas. How's your family? Aharas. How's your kids? Aharas. How's your animals? Aharas. And you just go, so if you go there and they start, you just say, Aharas. It's all good. It's all good. Right? And here's what Jesus is saying. Here, here's what Jesus is saying. He says, look, you're on the roads, you're traveling. Don't be doing that, man. Get where you're going and go. And here's why. There is an urgency to the task. There is an urgency to the task. Look at how huge the harvest is. Look at how many people are out there staring hell in the face. You've got to get going. Particularly in Jesus' context, he is on a timeline here. He is headed toward the cross. He is coming to those towns and he is preparing people for what he's doing. And, and we've we got to get moving here. There is an urgency to the task. Why? 
Because when they preach the kingdom, they are preaching peace. They are preaching peace. Look at verse 5. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Here's the reason for the urgency of our task. Our message brings peace with God. This is more than just a traditional greeting. Peace be upon you. No, no, this is, this is the Old Testament idea of shalom in its fullest sense. It is the peace that sinners so desperately need when they stand before a holy God deserving of the fullness of their wrath for their rebellion and disobedience. And here's the, here's the, the privilege, the, the joy that we're going to talk about next week of us being called to take this message around the world. We are ambassadors of peace. The, 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 the world is about to be nuked by God in judgment. To, to think in modern terms, war is coming and no one will stand. But we are the emissaries shot in ahead of time to say, God's willing to make peace. God's willing to forgive. God's willing not to pour out his wrath on you because his prince has already taken it. Bow the knee, yield your life. Take up your own cross and follow him by faith. Stop rebelling and worship him, the one true God who deserves it. And you will have peace with him. That's the unbelievably privileged task that we have. Bringing peace to those who are in enmity with God. We not only want laborers who preach God's kingdom, we also want laborers who trust in God's care. We want to be praying for laborers who trust God's care. How should workers for the harvest trust God's care? Firstly, to trust Him for their needs. We should trust God for our needs. This is very, this is very similar to what we saw when Jesus originally sent out the twelve apostles. Here to the 72, he says, verse 6, carry no money bag, no knapsack, or I think it's actually verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road, verse 7, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the labor deserves his wages. But do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus doesn't want a bunch of people running around seeking to get rich off their work as disciples. Someone should call the television stations and tell them that. Jesus does not want people running around with a desire to get rich off their work as his disciples. Nor does he want them dragging around five or six pieces of Samsonite. The latter reveals a lack of faith to those who are preaching a message that we should take up our cross to count the cost and leave everything behind to follow God, while the former reveals an unhealthy attachment to the very things that God is calling us to forsake. Luke has been showing us over and over and over again that wealth, power, and prominence are not marks of the kingdom. Paul will expand this in his letter to 2 Corinthians and say, this is what God delights to use. Weakness. Fallibility. Brokenness. He, he loves to take that which looks like nothing and accomplish great things with it by investing his power there. In fact, if we are pursuing these things, wealth, power, prominence, then frankly we're idolaters. No better than those who would bow down to false gods with the names of Baal, Zeus, and Allah. In our mission, we must trust God to give us what we need. More than that, we need to trust God. 
We need to trust in God's care during times of rejection. We must trust in God's care during times of rejection. Look at this large section of the passage beginning at verse 10. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, what is he saying here? Well, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these are all Jewish cities. These are all Jewish cities. And, and, and he, what he is saying is, look, you've had the covenant. You've had the promises. You've had the law. You've had the temple. You've had the sacrifices. You've had the end with God and the fulfillment of God's promises. His will for your life has been revealed through me and you have rejected it. To you who have seen such grace and turn your back on it, it will be worse for you in the coming judgment than on these pagan cities who are steeped in idolatry and sensuality and wickedness who never had the chance to hear. doesn't mean those Gentile people are going to be saved, but he says the judgment will be worse on you. They saw the works of God. They beheld his Messiah and they rejected him. Now, as we think about applying to our context, there's a lot of things that we could say, but for the sake of time this morning, the one thing that I want us to zero in on is this. Jesus makes clear that there is a day of judgment that is coming, and we need to be clear about that as we preach God's kingdom. Preaching God is love makes no sense of the gospel unless we also preach God is holy. Grace is only amazing against the backdrop of sin and judgment and hell. Even today, as Jesus' disciples, as those who will obediently tell of his saving work, there will be rejection that we will face. Often at this very point, people don't want to be told they're going to hell. People don't want to be told there's only one way. This rejection might come in small ways, like losing friends or even losing a job. Some of you sit here and you say, that's not small, that's huge, that'll be devastating to me. Well, keep it in perspective. Because the rejection of the world often comes in ultimate ways for others if we are faithful to our calling. Some of you have heard of the recent death of a young man named Ronnie Smith who died in Benghazi, Libya. He was there with his wife and his small child as a teacher at the international school there, but he was more than just a teacher. He was a Christian and he moved there to take that secular job in the hopes that he might reach people for Christ. And yesterday morning, Dr. John Piper wrote a blog post about this death and about what it means for the church because last year, Smith wrote a letter to Piper's ministry desiring God to tell them that in large part, a message that Piper himself had preached was influential in the decision he and his wife made about going to Libya to work and to serve. I want you to stop and think for a minute what it was like for Piper to be reminded, perhaps he knew, but to be reminded that this man who was just gunned down at 33, leaving a wife and a small son, 
was there in large part because God brought him there through a message that he had preached. What, how would that make you feel? How would that make you respond? Well, I, I, I've put the entirety of that article, that blog post in the bulletin, and I would encourage you to read over it, to think over it, and to pray for the Smiths this afternoon. But I want you to listen to some key things that Piper says in that post. I want you to hear those things and to be clear about those things because here's the reality. Not because he's all that spectacular to look at. Ask some people who just saw him in person uh, yesterday. Nevertheless, God has used and is continuing to use John Piper as a, as a, as a kindling provider for the flame of missions in the hearts of an entire generation. I guarantee you that people who are, who are 40 and under and are passionate about missions, for the most part, are probably that way because they read one book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And so the question is, if God is using Piper in that kind of way, and he's pushing people out into these hard places, how are we to think about it? How is Piper thinking about it? Listen to what he says. He says, I am sobered. Ronnie is not the first person who has died doing what I have encouraged them to do. He won't be the last. If I thought death were the worst thing that can happen to a person, I would be overwhelmed with grief. But the whole point of Ronnie's life is that there is something worse than death. So he was willing to risk his own life to rescue others from something far worse. And he could risk his own life because he knew his own risking and dying would work for him an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 And he knew God was able to meet every need of his wife and his son. Philippians 4.19 We are not playing games. When I preach that risk is right, I know what I am doing. When I say God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in Him, especially in suffering, I know what suffering may mean. When I say, fear not, you can only be killed, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, I take seriously the words of Jesus, quote, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. He goes on to say, I call thousands of you to take Ronnie's place. They will not kill us fast enough. Let the replacements flood the world. We do not seek death. We seek the everlasting joy of the world, including our enemies. If they kill us while we love them, we are in good company. Jesus did not call us to ease or safety. He called us to love for the sake of his people everywhere among all peoples. So here it is. We, we may not like rejection. In fact, I know we won't. But here's the sobering reality. Jesus says, if they reject you because of me, then they also reject me. And if they reject me, they are rejecting the one who sent me. In verse 16, he says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. In other words, Piper's right. This is no game that we're playing when we talk about preaching the gospel to neighbors or nations. This is no take it or leave it proposition. We are talking about life and death. When we speak the gospel, Jesus himself is speaking through us, calling people to himself. And if they believe, then they're believing in Christ. And if they reject our message, they are rejecting Christ. 
This is about eternal salvation and eternal damnation. Those are the only two options. Lincoln Duncan wisely asked, do you live life with that sense of the weightiness of your gospel conversations with other people that lives hang in the balance? This is why we have to pray, friends. This is why we have to call it to God, loved ones, because the task is simply too great for us to do by ourselves, both in terms of numbers and in terms of strength and encouragement and resources. We need more workers. We need more resources. We need more faith that God will actually save people through our message and that Jesus is actually worth the risk of going and proclaiming. In other words, we need the Lord of the harvest to drive us and sustain us in the work of the harvest. Now let me end by giving you some practicalities about all this. Some of you maybe have never committed to pray for for missions and missionaries like this. So how do you do it? How do do you pray long term for the nations for missionaries? I want to say two things. First of all, use the scriptures. Use the scriptures. Start with a passage. Start with this passage right here. Pray these kinds of things right here. I've already given you, if you're taking notes, or even if you just open the Bible, you've got a prayer guide right here, what to pray for. Or maybe pick a day of the week, maybe two or three days of the week, and whatever you're reading from the Bible that day, turn it back into prayer to God. Whether it is a, a principle or a doctrine or some practical application, or whether it's the very words of God, turn back into prayer to Him. For example, if you've been reading with us in our two-year Bible reading plan, last week you began the, the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Just think about Revelation 1 and its description of the risen Christ and what it would mean to pray that and pray in light of that. A couple of months ago, our two boys were um, working through the book of Revelation in their, in their devotional time. And um, they had just read chapter 1, and we invited David to pray at dinner. And these words were still ringing in his head. And at no prompting to me, he prayed, Dear God, the Alpha and the Omega who stands among the lampstands with the seven spirits, bless our food and our night, help us to love each other. Amen. That, that I don't have to tell you, that, that's it like goosebumps all over my body when I heard that. So think about praying that, that kind of language for anyone, but especially missionaries. Think about praying for them in light of that glorious, supreme, risen Savior who stands over all things, calling his people to himself. What would that look like? Well, you can do one of two things right now. You can just bow your head and listen, or you can open Revelation 1 and follow along and see what, I, see what I'm going to do. We're going to stop and we're going to pray for missions right now. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your son to us. And now we pray acknowledging that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Nothing can stop his will as the sovereign over all things. Father, we're thankful that Jesus loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to you, our God and our Father. We know that he loves others as well and that if we preach the gospel, he will call them to himself. So, Father, give us courage and boldness because of King Jesus' reign. Give us compassion and urgency because of King Jesus' love. And Father, we rejoice in your Son, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and is to come. We rejoice in him who John saw as utterly glorious 
standing in the midst of seven lampstands signifying his very presence among his churches. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest reminding us of his worth to be king and to reign over the nations. The hair of his head was white like white wool, like snow, reflecting his perfect wisdom with which he reigns. All of his judgments are true and right. Father, raise up a generation of laborers who believes that, who fears nothing, no man, no spiritual force, for their trust is in the power and authority and wisdom of your son, the risen Christ. John says that your son's eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Father, your son is is not one with the feet of clay. He is not like us, God. He is perfect and upright in every way. No one can stand under his piercing gaze. No one can escape his judgment. Father, we cannot escape save for his atoning death. God, make us to be those who delight in his salvation and delight in telling others. God, make those that we support even now those that continue to grow in their delight of your salvation and their delight in telling others. Father John saw that in his right hand Jesus held seven stars, the fullness of his church. Jesus is our great shepherd. He cares for us, not just for us in this room, but for all the people around the world. God, may we rest in that. May we find security and comfort in that. Most of all, Father, we're thankful for Jesus' mouth, which John saw proceeding from it, a a sharp two-edged sword, and one whose face was shining like the sun shining in full strength. Father, we, we know that the word of Christ is true and powerful and glorious. God, may we sit under that word, basking in the glory of your Son. And may we declare that word for the joy of all peoples. We love you, Father. Hear our prayer. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. When you think about praying for missionaries, when you think about praying for us, use the scriptures in prayer. Secondly, use resources. Use resources. There are two amazingly helpful resources that will aid in you praying specifically and intelligently for missions. The first is a book called Operation World. The other is a website or a phone app called The Joshua Project. The first focuses on the need of every single country in the world in in regards to missions and information in regards to its history, its progress, and its obstacles. So every day you open this book and there is a country. It might be Algeria. It might be Niger or the Philippines or Bolivia or, 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 or anywhere in the world. And it will tell you, here's how many Christians there are. Here's the other religions. Here's what they need. Here's how to pray. The other specifically focuses in not on countries, but on people groups, telling you again why they are unreached, why they are difficult to reach, and what is going to be required that they hear the gospel and see disciples made. The reality is this. We are lived in such a blessed time you think about people like Adoniram Judson and William Carey, these people who, who, who went off a couple hundred years ago, kind of the, the, moderns, the modern missions push. 
It took them months to arrive where they were. And therefore it took months for letters to go back by steamship. Back to their... To, to their so if they have a need... And they said, we need you to pray for this. We need you to send more money. We need you to send more workers. It would take months for that to get there and then months for it to get back. We don't live in that age anymore. I click two buttons on my phone. And I know everything there is to know about Canada. Just right above me. I get an email from our missionaries in the Philippines saying, pray for this this emergency need. And I, I, I copy and paste and dump it on the table in a prayer request. And immediately all of you get that. What an amazing age in which we live. But oh, how we waste it. We waste it. Because we we don't commit to pray like we should. Let's just be honest with ourselves. We, We pray for missions whenever somebody reminds us to pray for missions. You think about this newsletter that that comes once a month. Supposedly, as Southern Baptists, we're a praying people impacting a lost world. I'm not sure if that masthead is, is accurate. It's better now, and I'm thankful for it, but for months, I threw all these away in the garbage after Sunday school. You realize these are your missionaries. Every time you put money in a plate, you fund them, you support them. You have elected trustees who oversee them and make sure they are doctrinally sound and that they, they have their cares being, being met. And so when this comes in, this is a report on, on your missionaries. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we open the thing up and see the 31 ways, one a day that we can pray for those that are serving on our behalf for the nations? I think we should. I think we should. How can we not? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We should be praying not just for those in the field, but for so many more that could be going. In her class on the history of missions, Yvonne Wood of the U.S. Center for World Missions describes what she calls the biggest lost opportunity in missionary history. Think about this. Centuries ago, there was a 13-year-old boy in Mongolia who inherited some land from his father. This boy was an intelligent warrior with instinctive brilliance. As a military strategist, he was also ruthless. And as he grew, he began to form fighting bands that went from village to village until he was ruling over two million people in a Mongolian empire that stretched from China to India, from Siberia to the edges of Western Europe. This young man was named Genghis Khan. And he ruled more territory than any man had ever ruled before. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Western world at that time, a great revival was taking place as men like St. Francis of Assisi went out preaching with other monks committed to preaching and the gospel spread and people became followers of Jesus Christ. Following Khan's death, the bulk of his empire eventually went to his grandson, Kublai Khan, who established his capital city in perhaps a place you've heard of, Beijing. This Khan had two Italians that came to his court their last name was perhaps other name you've heard polo they began to tell Kublai Khan about christianity in europe and the ruler became incredibly interested he said i want you to go back to your homeland and i want you to bring back a hundred missionaries because once my people hear about this there will be more christians in this country than in yours the polos went back excited to italy the message went out we need a hundred missionaries to go now no one went No one was interested in going. 
just a generation before that, you had entire bands of preachers roving the countrysides, going into Muslim lands, wanting to meet with sultans at the threat of being beheaded to tell them of Jesus. And the next generation later, no one cared to travel. Where they're requesting a hundred missionaries to come. Eventually, two friars went with the polos, this time with a young man named Marco. But along the way, the friars grew scared and went back home. After months of travel, the Apollos returned empty-handed before Kublai Khan, who asked, where are the missionaries? He was told no one came. Eventually, the church did send a small handful of missionaries, but at that time, the opportunity had passed. Khan was uninterested in the people who were first uninterested in him. I wonder if we're wasting those kinds of opportunities today. Maybe it's not the rule of a world. Maybe it's just a friend. Maybe it's the person who lives across the street from you. Or maybe it is the chief of a village or the ruler of a nation. Here is what we know. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In this room this morning, I look around and I see all kinds of people that are here. But I see some people that I hope God will call to do great things for his kingdom. I pray that God will raise them up to go where the name of Jesus has never been proclaimed, that they might proclaim it. And I see others of you knowing that you will most likely stay and my hope is that you will hold the rope for them, that you will work hard at your jobs, not to line your pockets or your retirement portfolios, but to give generously to support those that go out from our midst. I hope that you will stay enjoying the comfort of your homes in this building so that you can devote even more time to pray for laborers in the harvest field. And as I look around, I see all of us, all who are believers in Christ, and I hope that we will be faithful right where we are today until God tells us to go somewhere else, laboring in the harvest fields of Bay City, of Essexville, of Midland, of Saginaw, and St. Charles. I see all of us called to be throwing life preservers to those drowning in sin by telling them of a God who saves even at the cost of the life of His Son. So let's pray, let's send, and let's go so the world can hear the gospel of Christ. Father, we pray with trembling in our hearts and stillness in our bodies because we are coming before You, the Holy God, who has not only saved us, at the cost of the shedding of the blood of his own son. But who, if we believe, we acknowledge reigns in complete and utter supremacy over our lives. Father, there's no way to get around a passage like this. It's not just this passage, it's the whole of the Bible the movement from Genesis to Revelation that shows your heart as a missionary God. Father, you call us to be part of that task of declaring the name of your Son that people might give you glory and joy. Father, I pray that this sermon would weigh heavy on us in the coming days, perhaps even the coming weeks and months, God that you would use this sermon and the one to follow to help us to second guess whether the plans that we have for our life are truly plans that honor you, are plans that 
that you would have for our lives. Father, someone has said that the question we, we often ask is, should I go? But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said go. And the question we should ask is, am I supposed to stay? And yet, Father, even if we are called to stay, we are called to stay and tell. We are called to stay and serve. We are called to stay and preach and make disciples. God, that is the, the calling on all of our lives, from the least of us to the greatest of us. So, Father, I pray that wherever we go, wherever you would have us to be, that we would be found faithful and that your Son would be honored in it. We ask it in his name. Amen.